Everyone found 1 Corinthians 9 okay? Verse 19? Okay. Why don't we stand and read the gospel then? Or not the gospel, the, the uh, 1 Corinthians 9.19. So when Paul begins in 19 by saying this, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more. To the Jews I become as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law, as without the law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win, I might win those who are without the law. To the weak I become weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Let's pray. God, when we read these uh, four, four verses, um, it's amazing how full of wisdom these verses are, even though we've only, there's only a short passage we're reading here. And like always, regardless of whether we do one verse or 20 verses, we always have something to learn from you, something to take away in terms of the reshaping of our mind and the way we think about life as Christian people. And Lord, uh, the church is not doing well in Canada as a general statement. No country in the world is looking to Canada as a model for how the Holy Spirit is moving through our nation. We're not an example to any nation really at all. And there's a reason for that. And partly, one of the reasons will be what we're about to learn today. And just our willingness to go after people in terms of the way we, we do ministry. And I pray, God, that these words uh, would penetrate the minds and hearts of the people here today, including myself, because I'm responsible for upholding truth no, no different than anybody else in here. And I pray, God, that if we have a vision of how we're to be used by you in the kingdom, that it would be shaped differently today after this message. May we learn from Paul and through the provision of your spirit. In Christ's name, amen. Well, you might be wondering why we're reading from 1 Corinthians today instead of 1 Peter. I thought it would be appropriate to take a break for a couple of reasons. One, uh, we knew the women were going to be gone on the retreat, and we're kind of, in my mind anyway, trying to do everything as, as an inclusive group to include everybody in terms of how we're learning through that book. And with some people gone, I didn't want to have them left behind in the series. Secondly, uh, many of you may or may not know this, but uh, Dan, who's the church pastor that we came from, uh, him and I are preparing First Peter together. So we, we spend every Wednesday doing the sermon prep together, and it's been very valuable to both of us in terms of the um, contributions we both make to that prep. And he's actually going on a sabbatical in June. He's been preaching, he's been a pastor for something like 15, 16 years, never taken a break. And his board recommended he take a sabbatical. So he's leaving June 13th for six weeks straight. And so um, I'll be taking a break from First Peter with him so that when he comes back, we can do this together again. So for the next uh, couple weeks, we'll take a break from First uh, Peter. I'll do two more sermons, and then we'll take another break for a bit, and then he'll be back and we'll jump back into the book. 
So we'll do some topical sermons uh, uh, in the next month or so. So I'm not sure how many of you know this or not, but we have actually three pillars that uphold our ministry here. Everyone's got a vision statement and things like that. We kind of have three pillars of Genesis House that we believe in. One is church planning, where our goal is to, instead of having one large church of 500, maybe have 10 churches of 50. Now that's, that's our goal, that's our hope. It may not always go that way. We might be forced into a situation of a church of 500, but we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. But our goal is to just keep church planting and make our church small in, in small little sections so that each pastor or elder leading that church can actually take care of the families appropriately in that church. So church planning is one pillar. Second one is relational discipleship. Uh, we believe that we should do discipleship by investing one person's life into another with a scripture at the center. So again, we're all for that. But we don't believe discipleship are program-based. Program like, we don't think that uh, just because you go to an ABF, you're being discipled, or you go to a small group, you're being discipled. Discipleship happens one-on-one -on -one or one-on-two or in families or groups in which there's a constant and, um, a commitment of one person's life to another with God's word at the center. And we do it through relationships and not through like stranger, stranger um, interactions. Third one though is relational evangelism. That's the third pillar of our, of our church is relational evangelism. This is where you intentionally build friendships with people in order to share the truth of God's word. So we're not for a way of the master type of stuff where you go up to people on the street and say, did you know you're a sinner? And if they say no, you say, well, let me tell you, you've ever told a lie? And then try to lead them to Christ that way. In this culture, I don't think that's going to go too far. And it's not going to really help anyone come to know God in a loving way. I know there's people might argue against that, but we just don't feel that's the best way of doing evangelism. We encourage people in our church to make relationships with non-Christians. And then through that, intentionally invest their lives with them, answering the questions they have about Christianity, and, and, as, and God permitting, allow for an opportunity to share the gospel with them. So I thought I would do today something a little different, and that's talk about one of the, the third pillar of our church. I want to talk to you about relational evangelism to help you understand the vision of our church and how this is actually practically supposed to be lived out the way I've come to understood it and how I'm trying to lead this church in understanding it. And this, of course, comes from Paul's teaching in chapter 9 of Corinthians. So let me give you the context first before we, we jump in. Well, actually, I'll just jump into verse 19. This is what Paul says. He goes, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. The context here is in verses 1 through 19, uh, 18, um, Paul has just reminded the Corinthian church that although they had the, he had the right to be financially supported by these guys, he never enforced that right upon them. So he was their spiritual teacher, their mentor. He led them to the gospel. He gave them the gospel, led them to Christ. But even though he had the right to be financially supported, he never asked that from them. And the reason he didn't ask was because he didn't want any hindrances between them. And that he didn't want them to think that the only reason he came to preach to them was because he was trying to make a buck off of them. He didn't want them to think that he had some kind of ulterior motive where he's trying to get rich off of these guys. And false teachers would often do that. And he didn't want to create a hindrance in that way. So when Paul defined himself here as being free in verse 19, it was his way of saying that although he had the right to be financially supported by them, he set aside this personal right so as not to be obligated to them in any way. So as a free man then, you might expect Paul to take the lazy way out. Well, I'm not obligated to you, Corinthians, so I'm not even going to bother investing in you or anybody else anymore. 
but he doesn't do that. He actually saw himself as a free man, as being a, actually being a slave. <laughs> you pick up the, the irony in the words. He says, for though I'm a free man, I have made myself a slave to all. Now, it's interesting he describes himself as a slave when he just described himself as being free. Because they're, again, polar opposites. But as a, as a slave, he, as a slave, Paul understood this, that he would have obligations opposed on him by others. You know, if you're a slave and you belong to a master, you'd be obligated to, to fulfill the master's wishes. And Paul's saying this, although I'm free, I still see myself as being obligated to people. I still see myself in that way. So was, this was a voluntary enslavement on Paul's part. And even though no one told him he should be a slave, he understood that he wanted to be one for all men. Now, what was the purpose for this? His, his, the reason why he saw himself enslaved to every single person he ran into was because of his care that they would come to know Christ in a personal way. Four out of five verses, he mentions this word about winning people to Christ. Look at verse 19. He says, I made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. Verse 20, to the Jews I became a Jew so that I may win Jews. Verse 20 again, he says, um, those being under the law, though myself not being under the law, so that I may win those who are under the law. Verse 21, again he says, um, you see it again, he says, so that I may win those who are without the law. Verse 22, he says, so that I may by all means save some. You get the point of the passage. In four out of five verses, he keeps mentioning this over and over. His whole purpose of being a slave to all men was to win them to Christ. So the question we have to answer is, how did he do this? What did he mean by becoming slave to all men? Well, let me, let me be clear on this right off the bat. And I'm sure you, I don't have to tell you this, but I will anyway, just in case there's some confusion. It did, he didn't mean this, that he was going to compromise in his Christian values and morals in order to try to win people to Christ. So he wasn't saying this. Um, he had a neighbor who liked to go to the ranch instead of go dancing. So he noticed his neighbor would always go. So he thought, hmm, I should participate in his lifestyle in order to go do that. So he heads off to the bar and he notices his neighbor gets super hammered and drunk. And so he thinks, oh, I'll just get drunk with him in order to win him to Christ. That's not what he means by, by doing that. He never, he never compromised his Christian virtues and morals and what it was to be a follower of Jesus. So what did he do if it wasn't fall into their sinful patterns? Whatever social situation Paul entered, entered into, he adapted himself to their social and cultural customs. In other words, he became a social chameleon. He became a social chameleon. I like the way the NIV commentary puts it. Um, he, it says this, not only did Paul not use his right to material support in preaching the gospel, but he also deprived himself by curtailing or holding back his personal privileges, social and religious rights in dealing with different kinds of people. That's a great uh, summary by the NIV commentary. So, what did this look like? Well, we get an idea by the groups that he mentions, starting in verse 20. The first group he mentions are the Jews. And read verse 20 with me. To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. 
to those who are under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I may win those who are under the law. <laughs> it's a tongue twister. Try saying that five times fast. The people he's speaking about here are definitely Jewish people because they're under the law of Moses and probably proselytes. This category, he says, and though, um, yeah, he, the second category in verse 20, like 20 verse B, seems probably are proselyte people as well. So I don't think it's just Jewish people, it's proselytes. Those who are Gentiles who have converted to Judaism. So they've adopted the entire Mosaic law underneath them. So these are the two kinds of people he's probably speaking to. But again, it's Jewish in focus, those who uphold the Mosaic law. So it doesn't tell us here examples of how Paul did this, but fortunately for us, other scriptures tell us in which ways he would have done this. But it would have required him to observe then certain feasts if there were feasts presented to him. He probably would have, he would have observed a Sabbath if he was with Jewish people, even though he knew he was free from worshiping the Sabbath. He would have eaten certain meals and, certain, and avoided certain foods when he was with Jewish people because he knew it would offend them. And probably one of the greatest uh, uh, examples of this is found in Acts 16 when he finds Timothy. So he walks into, um, he, actually in Acts chapter 16 he finds Timothy and he's really impressed by Timothy. But the problem with Timothy is his parents are, are, are uh, his parents who are married, one's Greek or Gentile and one's Jewish. So he was not circumcised because he was, um, his father was Greek. So what happened then, if he's going to take Timothy along in service, he's going to have to get him circumcised in order to get the people of the Jewish people to accept him into the synagogue and to accept him as being a proselyte. So you could see the dilemma on Timothy <laughs> as well, and on Paul though, in terms of this idea of winning Jewish people. Timothy could have said, no Paul, I ain't doing it. God does, you know, the cross abolished the necessity for circumcision. But Paul, knowing he wanted to win Jews, and Timothy having the same mindset, went ahead and did it. And look at this in Acts 16, 1 degree. Paul came to Derbe and to Lystra. And a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. But his father was a Greek, and he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted this man to go with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew his father was a Greek. This is what it means to be all things to all men. Because if he was going to try to preach the gospel to them, he needs to fit into their social context and their religious um, context in order for them to be accepted. And to fail to do so would mean that they'd turn a deaf ear to anything Paul and Timothy had to say. But their whole purpose was to win people to Christ. The second group was in verse 21, the Gentiles. It says, To those who are without the law, as without the law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I may win those who are without the law. The people who are without the law, of course, are Gentile people. All right? They don't have the Mosaic law. And we see multiple examples of them throughout the, 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 the New Testament. But a great example of this was Galatians chapter 2. What's happening there? Do you remember Paul? Paul's in Antioch. And he's eating with Gentile people. He's eating their food. He's, he's hanging out with them. But interestingly enough, who was also there with them? Peter. 
What was Peter doing? Initially, eating with them. But when Jews showed up into town, guess what he did? He switched ships. He wouldn't associate with the Gentiles anymore, and he went and sat over at the Jewish table because he didn't want to get rejected by his own people. So Peter here is in a real conundrum because he's the one preaching. He's the one, actually, God gave him the vision <laughs> about uh, nobody's unclean anymore. And here's Peter teaching that in Acts, and people come to know the Lord. And it goes to the, uh, uh, Cornelius' house and brings people to salvation. And here he is years later falling into the old traps. But Paul is here eating with Gentile people. But when the Judaizers come forward, he, he doesn't stop just because they're there. He continues to eat with the Gentiles, but Peter gets sucked into this game. How about in Acts 17 when, when Paul shows up in Athens? He's there to lead people to Christ. And what's he doing? He's walking through the marketplaces. Not only that, he's studying their idols. He's going and reading all the inscriptions of who they were. And then he's listening and even debating Greek philosophers. He even quotes some of the philosophers in his defense of the gospel. Now, some rejected the message, sure. And some said, we want to hear more. But some actually came to know who Jesus was. But here's the point. Paul was not afraid to enter their environment, adapt their social and cultural and religious context, because he knew it was necessary to win souls. But he never compromised in his Christian morals and ethics. He never sinned. The third group is in verse 22, and these are the, defined as the weak people. Uh, we'll read that together. It says, To the weak I became weak, that I may win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. Now, weak is used in a different, different ways in the New Testament. Uh, in one way, it describes those with physical ailments. So actually the majority of times I saw it used was to describe those who were sick or even uh, crippled. But it's also used to describe those who are weak in conscience. They're weak in conscience. These are the kind of people that are over-scrupulous and have all these kinds of rules about what Christianity is and isn't supposed to be and so on. So I don't know which one Paul had in mind here, whether he was thinking more of the people who are weak in conscience or if there are more people who are weak in terms of like physicalities. But here's the point. However he saw... Whenever he walked into their situations, again, he became what they were and adopted their customs in order to try to win them to Christ. And it wasn't just these three groups. In fact, verse 22 says, I made by, um, he says, I've become all things to all men. So these are three categories of, of people he was trying to win. But whatever situation he was in, he, he did it to every single person. So if he was to individually meet every single one of you in your lives, He'd figure out your interests, your desires, your loves, your passions, and he would come into your world and into your context, and he would not expect you to bend to his. And why? Verse 23. He did all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. He did all things to win people to Christ. It was all for the gospel's sake. So Paul, as an, evangelist, as, a, as an evangelistic strategy, knew that in order to set the table in winning people to Jesus, he required him to put his own cultural and social preferences aside and adopt the practices of the people he was witnessing to. Now, it wasn't that the physical act itself of laying aside his preferences was going to basically win people, but it's what the act produced 
See, if he, if, so again, it wasn't because I, you like pool, so I'm going to play pool, and now you're going to become a Christian. That wasn't it. It was the fact that, that what he did, it, it, it spurred on something else. It spurred on trust. It spurred on that they showed that he cared for them, that he loved them. And through that, it enabled him to gain the right to speak into the lives because he'd earned their trust. So the physical act of self didn't produce salvation but it gave them, it was a catalyst by, being, by which he could then proclaim truth. And if he went into that situation with his own Christian liberties and tried to pull rank, all he would have done would have offended people. He would have offended. He could have gone in with Timothy and said, you know what, Timothy doesn't need to be circumcised, you Jewish people. He doesn't need to be. If you guys just understood the Bible, you just, get it, you just understand that and get it right and you let him in here. He's like, no, I, it's not going to work. I need to do this to, to open up a door for effective evangelism. And here's the thing. Paul's no different than you and I. He would have had preferences just like we do. He would have preferences in literature. If I were to say to him, do you prefer Jewish literature or Gentile literature? He'd tell you. Do you prefer Jewish food or Gentile food? He'd tell you. Do you prefer Jewish clothing or Gentile clothing? He'd tell you. Do you prefer Gentile or Jewish social customs? He'd tell you. He'd go on and on and on. But he put it all aside in order to win souls. So the application is very clear to us. And there's only one lesson today. And I'm going to give it to you right away. And then we're going to spend the next few minutes unpacking how this works in our lives. The one and only lesson for today is simply this. An effective strategy for winning people to Christ is to set aside our own personal, social, cultural, and religious preferences in order to embrace the customs of the secular people around us. An effective strategy for winning people to Christ is to set the table, or is to set aside our own personal, social, cultural, religious preferences in order to embrace the customs of the secular people around us. Now this is such an important lesson. I want to approach this from different angles so you fully comprehend what this means for you and me. First of all, this is a radical way to approach evangelism. It's a radical way. You know why? What's not in this? It's not about the gospel presentation. It's not about you going into your room and memorizing the four spiritual laws. It's not about you practicing the Romans road. It's not about you, uh, like, even, like, yeah, doing any of those sort of, like, um, neat little projects in terms of winning people to Christ. It's not even about inviting people to church so that the pastor gives a slam dunk sermon and you hope that he preaches a, a killer that day that people just want to fall on the floor like face down start crying and invite Christ into their life. It's not about that either. It's about you and I investing our lives in someone else's life so that we gain, we gain trust from them and build a relationship so that we are given the platform to speak truth into the lives. Second thing, even though this is the great way to approach evangelism, it's not a guarantee they'll come to salvation. Did you notice what Paul said? He didn't say, so that I, I will win, I will win. He said, I might. Verse, verse um, uh, 19, I may win. Verse 20, I might win. Verse 21, I might win. And so on and so forth. So he understood that even though um, he was doing this as an effective way, he knew also that free will is fully intact. 
and that it's not a guarantee that someone's going to come to salvation. But he also knew that it was a very good way and an effective way of approaching evangelistic strategies. Thirdly, we've discussed how radical it was, or it is. It's not a guarantee. Thirdly, let's discuss now how to have someone or have someone in our lives in order to be able to move forward in this kind of approach. How do we how do we find someone to even do this with? Well, I suggest two ways. One's the practical way, and the other one's the supernatural way, and they actually both work hand in hand. The practical way is this: just start thinking about who is involved in your life already that you have a natural relationship with that are non-Christian. Who are the natural people that already are involved in your life? Is it your neighbor? Is it your karate teacher? Is it your art teacher? Is it your music teacher? Is it uh, you know, just a friend from high school? Like whoever. Who is involved in your life already that you have a natural relationship? That that's already gives you a huge clue because there's already some kind of foundation of trust there. But at the same time, at the same time, you then apply a Colossians 4 to your life. Apply Colossians 4. This is what Paul says. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the time for us as well, that God will open up to us a door for the word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak, Conduct yourselves with wisdom towards outsiders, which is non-Christians, making the most of every opportunity. Let your speech be seasoned with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. The key, the key thing here is that God will open up a door for the Word of God. You pray faithfully for God to bring someone in your life, I know He will. Because it says, the workers... The, la- like the, the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. Beseech or pray for the more workers to be sent into the harvest. True story, uh, when God started getting a hold of my life about, in a big way about uh, probably uh, eight years ago, um, I was uh, involved in about, uh, oh, I'd say at least, at least half a dozen ministries in the church I was serving at. And in a year, in a year, shared the gospel with nobody, never had a relationship really with any non-Christian, of, of, like I did in a, in a very um, minimal way, but never in like a deep relational way, where we'd hang out together on the weekends or do things on the weekdays and whatnot, or we'd phone one another to see how we're doing, nothing like that. After a year of serving in the ministry and six different ministries, uh, was basically uh, incapacitated in terms of being of any value to God, in terms of witness or salvation or discipleship. Quit every ministry I did because I recognized this was not the Christianity I wanted to live. Started praying for God to bring people to my life. In six months, he brought me three men to receive Christ in that six months. Two. And the only difference was, instead of being up front in the church where I looked really good to the outside masses, I was in the trenches, in the homes, quietly in the coffee shops, one-on-one. Two came to Christ. And that's how Genesis House was birthed. Because I'm like, this is ministry. Two people come to the Lord in six months, and I've done nothing in like basically, uh, you know, one year of a, of a quote-unquote effective service from the front. I'm like, God was opening up my eyes to what was necessary in order to bring people to Christ. 
So here's the thing, church. There's different obstacles that you and I are going to have to overcome if this is going to be a reality for our lives. The first obstacle is what I call Christian circle syndrome. My own words. This is when you have become a Christian for so long that you don't even have non-Christian friends anymore. This is a stat that came from uh, uh, my friend Dan in Calgary, and um, I've heard this also from other people. But apparently, uh, it's about, it takes an average Christian about seven years of being a Christian before their circle of friends have no longer any unbelievers in it anymore. So you become a Christian, all your, so you're a non-believer, all your friends are non-Christian, you become a Christian, usually after seven years, there's no non-Christian people of very close to you anymore. Everyone is basically a Christian circle. So here's the problem. If we're going to do what Paul does, <laughs> and we're going to try to become all things to all men, and we have no non-Christians in our life that we have relationships with, we're going to have to get out of our comfort zone and break the Christian circles syndrome. If we're to be evangelists, which is what God calls us to, how can we do that when we only have Christian friends? Second thing that we have to work through as obstacles is what I call time. <laughs> time. The favorite slogan in Okotoks. How you doing? How's things going? Busy. Busy. I've actually made it a point in the last two years not to even use that word in my vocabulary because I didn't want to, just because of the frustrations I have with hearing it all the time. I used to use it too, okay? But I just become, as I learned these things, I became sensitive to that. If you use that with me, I'm not going to be upset with you. <laughs> if you say I'm busy, I believe you, but I don't, that just, the point being is that's the battle cry of Okotoks. I'm busy. Okay, if you're going to make adjustments in your life, and I'm going to make adjustments in my life to accommodate non-Christian people, it's going to require time. It's going to require us to rearrange our schedules to fit people in. The third thing that I think is an obstacle to us is our own view of our personal rights. I want to speak to you young people first, and then I'm going to speak to you older people, and I don't know how you view yourself as being young or old, and I'm just going to leave that up to you and let God do the work <laughs> in figuring out which side of the coin you fit into here. As you young people, though, especially you teenagers in your early 20s, basically you're really trying hard in your life right now to, to grab the world by the tail. You're trying to establish yourself, establish your career, establish your family, establish who you are as a person. And your culture screams to you, you're an individual who has the right to express yourself however you want. And if others don't like it, who cares? Tough, don't be judgmental, leave me the heck alone. That's what, you're, that's what you think, that's what you believe, and we have it in our, this, like again, it's, it's, it's not just me, I've to lots of people talk about the millennials, and how, and again, and, and so on as well, who think that they have, like, they, don't, they can't understand why the world doesn't work around their schedule, around their, meeting their needs, and so on and so forth. But here's the thing, Paul is challenging you big time in this area. Because your culture is saying, you're an individual, and hear me roar. And what, and what Paul is saying is this, uh, don't infringe on that right. 
you're an individual, yeah, you have this, God's given you certain passions and desires, but don't let that be a hindrance in terms of winning people to Christ. I'll give you, this, I'll give you a, 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 an idea. Do you believe that right as a young person you should have a tattoo? Do you think you have a right? Do you think it's like, whatever, 50-50? Do you, what if it's a Hebrew slogan on your arm that no one can read, but it says, I love Yeshua? Okay, or a cross on your back with Jesus on it. Do you have that right? I'd say so. Do you have the right to have a diamond stud in your nose right here? Yep, you have that right. What if uh, you've met someone who is an old, older person, maybe in their 70s, and they're non-Christian, but you become friends with them, and you know probably from the culture they've grown up in and the different conversations you've had that they kind of find offensive uh, tattoos and sort of studs and earrings and stuff offensive. The culture would say, go talk to them, try to win them to Christ, do whatever you want because you have that right. And Paul says, cover yourself up and take that stud out of your nose and go into that person and try to win them to Christ. <laughs> I want to speak to you old people. And I don't know where I fit into this. <laughs> I guess I'm old to Blake, but uh, maybe young to Keith, I don't know. <laughs> Sorry, Keith, you're just writing strike. Don't ever sit in front of me, it's just like a target. <laughs> okay? But old people don't have the problem of trying to make their way in the world. Their problem is they're already set in their ways in this world. Right? You try telling. I, I've had this experience. You take someone who's like older, 60, 70, 50, whatever, 80, depending on your frame of reference, and try even talking to them about spiritual truths that you've learned in the Bible. Whatever they learned in their, by that, their famous pastor at 20 and 30 years old, that they put all their hope in, that ain't going to bend. They're sticking to what they learned 50 years ago in that barn, in that barn church out in the middle of that acreage, in the middle of Alberta. Right? Try talking to older people about theological things you're learning. They are set in their ways. They are set in their way. Hard to find people in the Christian community who are teachable in these ways. Never mind other parts of life. But ask older people about what they think about music. What they think about alcohol. They'll go on and they'll just lay it down on a line. And so often we can become fuddy-duddies in the way we approach uh, evangelism in these ways. So again, younger people... Like again, back to this view of our personal rights. Would you, as an older person, reject some of your preferences in order to bring your neighbor who's 40 years younger than you into your home to witness to Christ because you know what they like and what they prefer? So turn off your Gaither music and maybe put on Foreigner or Journey or whatever in order to win them to Christ. Seriously, this is what Paul is saying. Paul would have done that. Another obstacle. How about pride? How about pride? How is pride a stumbling block and an obstacle to evangelism? In order to pursue people that God has placed in front of us, that requires us to make a judgment call on how we deem that person. If we deem them worthy of our pursuit, because we like them and they, and they sort of fit our categories of life more, of course we'll go after them. 
But what if we judge them as not worth of our pursuit? And we actually think that we're kind of a little bit better than they are, and so therefore we don't want to make ourselves uncomfortable in the relationships we have with these people. I mean, we even fight against this in the church. Like, I'm going to, like, like strip as bare. Do you prefer certain people in this church over others? <laughs> easier to have conversations with certain people. Easier to serve certain people. It's a, it's, a, it's a reality even in the Christian community, never mind in the outside world. If you experience it in the Christian community, we're supposed to love one another fervently like we learned from First Peter. We definitely feel it in the outside world, especially when they're so far from us in, in morals and, and uh, in preferences. I mean, Dan, Dan said this in his sermon when he, did, he spoke on this. He did a great job and he said, you know, as Christians, we're smart enough to not demonstrate our outward aggression towards our dislike for people, so what we do is give them the cold, cold indifference. Right? You're smart enough, right? Like, you don't go up to like, non-believers and say, like, and tell them you hate them, but what you do is when you have three non-believers and you like one more than the other two, you'll intentionally ignore the other two, give them the cold indifference to go find the one you like. I mean, I'm guilty of those kind of feelings in my own life. But you and I have to remember that that person is no different to Christ than we were at one point. He, that person has a value, and then the cross of Christ was for them as well as it was for you and me. They are no more, no more, no less loved than you and I are by Jesus Christ. If He was willing to lay down His life to win them, then we should be willing to lay down our life to also win them. How about religious preferences? By religious preferences, what I mean is this. These are things that we have made up in our own heads, in our own minds, of what we think is right and wrong as Christians. So this is just our own, this is what we think is right, not what God necessarily thinks is right. I'll give you an example, clothing. If I were to ask you, versus your parents, or your grandparents, what is modest clothing? What should you wear to church? What should you wear to family dinners? You're going to get all sorts of ideas about what modest clothing is, depending on the generation that you belong to and who you are. Right? Would we be willing to change the way we approach clothing and put our preferences aside in order to have someone come into our lives in order to win someone to the Lord? How about willing to learn other people's beliefs? Right? Oh, as a Christian, all you should study is Christian literature and the Bible. Don't even go to that devil stuff. Right? Paul learned philosophy. He even quoted philosophy. Could you and I not study evolution and get to know it in a really good way so that you and I could communicate better to your atheist neighbor? Could we not study about Islam or something like that in order to communicate to our, maybe the bus driver that we see every day in the bus? Of course we could. But we might have rules in our own head that don't allow it. But they're not God's, they're ours. How about rest on Sundays? I know my grandfather was like this. You never, never, ever shop on a Sunday or watch TV, nothing. You just basically are allowed to eat and basically lay around on the couch. That's all you're allowed to do as a Christian. I grew up as a kid with that. What happens if your neighbor invites you over for dinner and, uh, and they, um, you want to bring them a gift and you don't have anything in the house you can give them 
What are you going to do? Are you going to, for the sake of your rules on Sunday, which God never gave us anyway, are you going to forsake buying them a gift to try to like show appreciation for them? Because you're going to follow your rule, or are you going to break the rule and go off to the store, buy something in order to show love towards your neighbor? Right? Paul would have gone out and bought something for that person. How about, the, how about you're, you think, well, I should rest really on Sundays and just completely do nothing. And I'm just going to do, like, I'm going to make everything about being lazy and fulfilling my own needs. And you see your neighbor struggling with a work project outside and needs your help. But you can't do that because it's your day of rest. How about walking into a bar to have a drink? Absolutely set against alcohol in any forms in your life. Even though the only thing that's prohibited in the scriptures is drunkenness. But you're absolutely prohibited. You have a friend come over, or they invite you to your house, and they offer you a drink. You don't have to take it, but if you don't, you should probably at least give an explanation of why. So they understand your, your mindset towards it. But again, would God care if you had a drink with that person as a way of building a relationship? No. We can't be known for Christians who disassociate from others because of things like we just mentioned. Paul would never have done that. Final category, and I'll leave it to, for discussion. Social preferences. This is when you embrace something that you prefer over what other people prefer. So these are just things that you like that other people don't. So here's an example. You know your neighbor loves gardening. You know it, but you hate it. You hate it. I mean, I hate it, just to let you know. But I hate it. But, but your neighbor happens to love gardening, which mine does, by the way, which is God's test on me. But do you just say, well, I don't like gardening, so I ain't doing it? Or do you go over and do gardening anyway to build a relationship so that God can open up a door for communication so that you can one day share the truth with them? How about crib? How about crib? You hate crib? Do you like crib? Well, you're, the person at the old folks' home that, you, that you've met sure likes it. Are you going to avoid playing crib because you don't want to, because it's not your thing? How about table tennis? Do you like ping pong? I know Blake does. Because your Asian friend that you see on the bus that you've met, that you've talked to on going on work. That's so crazy. It is, it is, but you know what? It fits. It fits. It fits because the Asian community love racket sports. You go to Edison School, watch badminton. Who's all out there? Most of them are Chinese. <laughs> they are. The Asian community loves those things. If you know they love it, if he tells you he loves it, what are you going to do? I don't like ping pong. I prefer tennis and walk away. Or do you say, hey, why don't you come, can, I, can I come over and you teach me? Right? How about martial arts? You like martial arts? Hate them? Because your neighbor does. He loves them. And he's invited you to go with them to try out a class or two. Ah, no, that's not my thing. I don't care about that. I prefer, like, ball hockey. Yeah, but your neighbor doesn't like ball hockey. And God's opened up a natural relationship for communication and friendship with this person. See, Paul believed that conforming to the social norms of those around him would set the table for people he was witnessing to, to become saved. So here's a question. Are you and I willing to become all things to all people? Do we have the will to give ourselves to others 
and readjust our preferences to make room for them. I'll leave you with one story. This happens to go back about eight years ago as well. I read a book, someone told me about a book about this guy who was uh, in the United States, he was sort of radical in his view of church. And he wrote a book about how to church plant and how to create small ministries and to be effective. And, and at the time, I was already being shaped this way in my own head. And I read his book. And at the, at the end of his book, he had talked, actually throughout the book, he talked about the relational side of church life, the relational side of evangelism, the relational side of discipleship. I phoned him because his, his number was in the back of the book. And I said, hey, I'm from Canada. Very interested in your book, I love it. Um, can you tell me some more about what you're doing? And so he went on to explain things and he goes, let me illustrate something that happened to us in our church, in our church plant in our home that we had lately. He said, we had a woman come to Christ in our ministry and uh, she opened up her house to a house church. Her husband was a non-Christian and he had wanted nothing to do with Christianity. And uh, and he would, whenever we'd meet on Sundays, he would go downstairs in the basement and basically wait till we were done. This, uh, this occurred for a number of weeks. And he said, you know, I, I basically thought it's time for me to make a move. So he studied, he, was li he lived near him. So he found out what the man's interest was in. The man's interest was in aquariums and fish tanks and collecting like, you know, like tropical fish. That was his interest. I mean, honestly, just shoot me now. Like, like, just shoot me now, okay? He, this guy, guess what he did? He started going over to his big house, taking an interest in everything he was doing, and this went on. Within six weeks, the man started attending the church, who he used to go in the basement of his own house to, started operating and coming to church, and a few weeks later, gave his life to the Lord. <laughs> That was the, this guy wrote a book this thick and used that story to illustrate the principles of his book to me. I mean, that's exactly what I'm asking of you to do in this Genesis House life. I'm asking you to do that. And I know there's people in your lives that you, God's already put in your mind today. And if not, it's because you have a Christian circle syndrome. And so God's now challenged you, you to break out of that seven year cycle. So let's have a time of discussion.